From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, November 13th. I'm Marco Werman. The Petraeus scandal widens with the top U.S. general in Afghanistan now under investigation. A reporter in Kabul says senior Afghan officials are mystified. They said, how on earth did General John Allen have time to write 30,000 emails? <laughs> After all, he was running a war. Plus, let's face it, email is never really private. This is what the scandal is revealing, is that how little protection those communications have from surveillance. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. David Petraeus is now not the only one under a cloud. Today we learn that his successor as top U.S. military commander in Afghanistan, General John Allen, is also being investigated. Allen is under scrutiny for inappropriate communications with a Florida woman, Jill Kelly. That's the same Jill Kelly whose complaint to the FBI exposed the affair involving Petraeus and led to his resignation as CIA chief. General Allen's scheduled promotion to Supreme Command of NATO has now been put on hold while investigators sift through as many as 30,000 emails and documents that the general reportedly shared with the Tampa socialite. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, 68,000 U.S. troops still on the ground are looking for direction. The BBC's Bilal Sawari is in Kabul. Now, neither Petraeus nor Allen have yet been accused of any wrongdoing, just poor judgment. How is it understood by Afghans what's going on here? Well, uh, I was speaking to a number of Afghan officials and leaders who are very close friends with General Allen uh, and uh, General Petraeus, actually, from his time in Afghanistan. And they're saying they're shocked, uh, simply shocked, like most Americans, uh, they are waiting for a number of questions to be answered. I was speaking to very senior Afghan officials, uh, including those close to President Karzai this afternoon, and they said, how on earth uh, did General John Allen have time to write 30,000 emails? <laughs> After all, he was running a war. Uh, and they said they're very interested to find out what exactly was the content of those emails. Uh, but they made it very clear that General Allen was very crucial to the success in the fight against Taliban, that he had a very close working relationship with uh, uh, Afghan uh, leaders and commanders. Now, Bilal, uh, these people you spoke with, as you said, are officials. What about, uh, you know, the average Afghan in the street? Is this kind of a unanimous sense that uh, really kind of too bad and shocking that this happened? It's interesting. You asked that question this morning when I was driving from uh, home to work. Uh, I met a shopkeeper not very far from my home, and he was reading the news on one of the front pages of a local newspaper, and he said he is just shocked uh, that uh, senior people like Petraeus and General John Allen would do something like that. So uh, this is news that has been widely covered, uh, uh, Afghan TV channels, radio stations, and the word of mouth has traveled uh, quite far. Both General Petraeus and General John Allen are names that 
most Afghans are very familiar with. They are uh, names that were always in the news, and uh, most people know them very well in this part of the world. Um, Bilal, let me ask you a cultural question. Uh, infidelity at this level in a person's career, especially a man in Afghanistan, what, what does that mean? What does that suggest to people? Well, it's not unusual for uh, a number of Afghan officials uh, to have uh, relationships outside of marriage, but the difference between Afghanistan and uh, somewhere like the United States is there's less accountability. Uh, those sort of details may never come. We may never know about uh, this sort of uh, uh, incident in, in a system like Afghanistan. And there are Afghan officials who have several wives. There are Afghan officials who have issues in their personal life. But as I said, it never comes out uh, in, in, in the press. It never uh, finds its way to the public. So that's a major difference. And I think there's no way you can compare the U.S. and, and Afghanistan in that aspect. But if an official in Afghanistan's uh, infidelity were to come out in, in the press, his marital infidelity, w would that be cause for resignation? I, I very much doubt that something like that might come in the first place. Secondly, mm. if it did, I would doubt that. I, I would highly doubt that. And, and, and that is one of the questions that one of the commentators on TV was saying, that, look, America is that far away, America is that strong because there's a system. Uh, even if you're General Petraeus, even if you're the CIA chief, if you do something wrong, you're going to pay for it. And and that aspect of uh, American system or American governance has been praised, if, if anything, uh, in this part of the world, in Afghanistan. The BBC's Bilal Sarwari speaking with us from Kabul. Even before the Petraeus scandal widened, General Allen's time as top U.S. and NATO commander in Afghanistan was winding down. Last month, President Obama nominated General Joseph Dunford to replace Allen. If confirmed, Dunford would become the sixth American commander to lead the war in Afghanistan since the conflict began 11 years ago. The world's Jason Margolis has more. Very little is known about General Dunford. Unlike other high-ranking generals, Dunford hasn't been much in the public eye. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta has praised Dunford as, quote, an exceptionally gifted strategic leader. President Obama has urged his quick confirmation. I went through my Rolodex of military experts and insiders today, and person after person said they didn't know enough about Dunford to comment. Marine veteran Paul Kane does know the man, though. I'm on a first-name basis with him. My name is Paul, and he's, his name is Sir. Kane served under Dunford, training the first Marines that entered Iraq before the war began. Kane is also a former fellow at Harvard's International Security Program. Kane went on to serve in Iraq, along with Dunford, who made his name at least among other Marines. He was the commander for the 5th Marine Regiment, which was, during that initial part of the war in Iraq, one of the most active and involved with some of the heaviest fighting. He has a nickname. He's known in the Marine Corps as uh, Fighting Joe Dunford because of that particular command. In 2005, Dunford returned to the Marine Corps headquarters in Washington. He rose up to become the second highest ranking officer in the Marine Corps. The role he's had in the Marine Corps is assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, which is essentially the chief operating officer for the Marine Corps. So he oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the United States Marine Corps. When Dunford took over that task, the U.S. military was exiting Iraq and surging in Afghanistan. Dunford has been to Afghanistan, but has never served a tour there. Tom Donnelly with the American Enterprise Institute in Washington says this makes Dunford a curious choice. The question is not what's right about General Dunford, which there may be a lot, 
But how come General Rodriguez, who is the natural successor to General Allen, isn't getting the job? Donnelly was referring to General David Rodriguez, who has spent significant time in Afghanistan. Donnelly says he thinks the White House tapped Dunford because he's divorced from the Afghanistan surge and is not emotionally tied into the operation. So I think this is, at least in part, a way of giving uh, the White House a freer hand in designing the policy and then outlining the pace of the drawdown between now and 2014 and in uh, defining whatever the residual force might be. Accurate or not, political scientist Stephen Biddle at George Washington University doesn't see Dunford's lack of experience in Afghanistan as a positive, but... The administration clearly does not believe that that kind of experience is necessary. General Allen didn't either before taking command in in Kabul, Uh, nor did General Petraeus, for that matter. Biddle has met Dunford once. He describes him as thoughtful and smart. And he says, while Dunford isn't as well-known as some other generals... Obviously, he's had a very accomplished military career. No one reaches this rank and an appointment like this without that. Marine veteran Paul Kane thinks Dunford is the right man for the job. He describes him as a straight shooter, no-nonsense, and loyal. I live about 20 minutes from the Bethesda Navy Hospital, where there's a lot of very seriously wounded soldiers and Marines. And I had a friend who was out there in the hospital, and half the times I would be going in to visit him... You know, General Dunford would be there, not in uniform, just making the rounds at the hospital to visit with these wounded soldiers and their families. So he is, he's an exceptional leader. If confirmed, Dunford would preside over the withdrawal of 68,000 American troops by the end of 2014. And it's highly likely that Dunford's name would be forever mentioned in the history books as the last leader of a full contingent of American troops in Afghanistan. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Officers in the U.S. military and intelligence services have a wide array of -of state-of-the-art communication devices at their disposal, but for their personal use, they turn to the same basic tools as the rest of us. At least that's what the ongoing investigations concerning Generals Petraeus and Allen suggest. Zainab Tufekshi joins us regularly to talk about the intersection of politics and technology. She's a visiting scholar at Princeton University's Center for Information Technology Policy. One twist says that it turns out that General Petraeus and Paula Broadwell may have stored the emails in draft format rather than sending them. And they saw that as an additional protection. Ironically, I had first heard of that technique as an investigation of how the 9-11 terrorists had used email. They had saved them in draft formats rather than sending them and just shared the passwords instead. I guess I'm always kind of surprised, as I often am when I hear stories like these, that the highest officials at the Pentagon use Gmail or Hotmail or any of these other things that we all have access to. Well, that is a reflection of how commonplace that uh, using email for personal purposes has become. It's like the phone or any other kind of communication. And it's thoroughly integrated into our everyday lives from, you know, very personal things to our financial dealings to how we get news. And this is what the scandal is revealing, is that how little protection those communications have from surveillance. Don't they have any protection available to them at the Pentagon? I mean, the Pentagon invented the internet. Obviously, for committing an affair, they were not going to use the secure military emails. They used their personal accounts. And in general, the personal accounts, we all use our Gmail accounts, our Yahoo accounts. I think most people would be shocked to learn how little legal protection they have. Uh, In fact, uh, police or FBI may access your emails over 180 days old if they're stored in the cloud, basically 
with no judicial review, and they need to just get a warrant if they're less than 180 days old. But the truth of it is most of the time people use these emails not thinking that they will be surveilled in this manner, and they would like to have the convenience of just using off-the-shelf email accounts, and that's what they do, including the head of the CIA, as we saw. Mm. What has this crisis uh, taught you, Zainab, about the, the media's ability to cover the military? This crisis has revealed a striking bubble around uh, top generals, starting with the Iraq war and embedding of journalists within the military. It has meant that we have less and less critical coverage of both um, the acts that the military undertakes. And these are really important. They are unlike affairs, which are personal tragedies. Uh, there is a war going on and there's a lot of lacking of coverage of the use of drones, the bombings. There's a lot of controversial issues that are not being covered, partly because journalists are not asking the critical questions and partly because they do not have the access to those areas unless the military okays this. And what we've seen is that these top generals seem to have been surrounded by people who are more interested in writing hagiographies of them than providing critical analysis. And I do want to say I have a very personal appreciation of how hard the military life can be. So I don't think, you know, we sh- that there's a lot of interest in the salacious materials here, but I- I'm from a military family myself, and I understand Turkish how hard these... Di- Turkish military right. but I grew up in NATO bases, so mm. I attended a lot of... Uh, I attended school with U.S. military schools, basically Department of Defense schools, and I've seen how hard deployments are on the military families and how hard they are both on the people who are away from their families and the families who are left behind. So I think this kind of adoring bubbles that journalists are forming around the generals are doing a disservice to military families as well. Always good to speak with you about this stuff. Zainab Tufekci, a visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy. Thanks a lot. Thank you for inviting me. Still ahead, do you bike and wish your bicycle was easier to ride? Help is on the way on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. China has been rocked by several food safety scandals in recent years. You remember the one involving hundreds of thousands of children who got sick from drinking tainted infant formula? Well, as public anger over such incidents has grown, China's government has had to take notice. Food safety even came up at a news conference during the current Communist Party Congress in Beijing. The World's Mary Kay Magsad has more. The event was meant to be cute, kid reporters asking senior ministers questions, a little entertainment on the sidelines of the Communist Party Congress. They hadn't banked on 11-year-old Sun Lu Yuan, pink bow askew in her hair. She said, I want to ask the uncles and aunties here one question. Grandpa Hu, Hu Jintao, said in his report that the health of the people should be improved. But even at my school, there have been problems with our lunches. Some students got food poisoning after drinking the milk, and others got sick after eating the food. I like snacks, but how can I know what I'm eating is safe? This is a question many Chinese would like to ask their leaders, especially after the 2008 tainted milk scandal. Since then, Chinese have become more outspoken in protesting against ever more creative food adulteration. 
They want their government to do more to prevent it. At this crowded Shanghai market, some vendors lay out fresh cuts of meat on the counter. As China has become more affluent, Chinese are eating more meat, four times more per capita than 30 years ago. But ramping up to feed that demand comes with risks and temptations for bad actors looking to make a quick buck. The resulting food scandals concern Wu Hong. He blogs about food safety. He says, in a recent scandal, some pork was found to contain the illegal additive clenbuterol. It was put in pig feed to make the pork leaner, but it can also cause heart attacks in humans. Wu Hong says it's gotten to the point where some Chinese coaches tell their athletes not to eat Chinese pork unless they raise the pigs themselves. Wu Hong didn't start out as a food safety advocate. Just a year ago, he was a grad student at Fudan University studying historical geography, but he kept hearing about food scandals. One involved a restaurant near his school that was using a carcinogenic chemical to make pork taste like beef. And I have eaten that for nearly half half a year. I was shocked. So Wu Hong decided to do something about it. He started a food safety blog called Throw It Out the Window. He got the name from a story he'd heard about Theodore Roosevelt. The president was reading *The Jungle* by Upton Sinclair about Chicago meat processing plants at the turn of the last century, and he was so shocked to read what went into his sausage that he threw it out the window. From that time on, the situation of the、uh, U.S. food safety became better and better. That's the reason why I named my website "Throw It Out of the Window." The U.S. once had its own problems with tainted food and watered-down milk, killing children in immigrant slums. But then Roosevelt created the Food and Drug Administration. Chris Hickey opened the FDA's China office more than four years ago. He says the founding of the agency came at a time in America that has some resonance with China's situation today. There was a focus. At that time, on the limits of capitalism and the the challenges of industry, if it went unregulated, so it was in 1906, and out of that context, that the modern FDA was formed. Wu Hong would like to see a similar revolution in Chinese food safety, and he's doing his bit. He posts information on his blog on food safety scandals around the country, and the social media network Weibo has helped him spread the word. Once Weibo users caught wind of his blog, the number of hits went from about 10,000 in one month to millions the next. Shanghai food safety officials tracked him down on campus and commended him. He ended up linking to their website so people with complaints knew who to call. He says Shanghai authorities have even consolidated four separate food safety hotlines into one. Before that, he says it was hard to get anyone to take responsibility. You'd call and they'd say, "It's now." My business, you should call another department. This is a problem throughout China. Eleven separate agencies have overlapping responsibilities for monitoring some half a million food companies. The FDA's Chris Hickey says he thinks the Chinese government is serious about trying to improve food safety, but its current approach is not a recipe for success. You can't inspect your way to safety. You can't test your way to safety. Given the global economy and the way that food is traded and shipped all around the world, you're never going to have enough inspectors. You're never going to have enough labs to do the job. It's just unrealistic. The alternative: build a system that's prevention-based. 
Hickey says the FDA has run workshops for Chinese officials and food industry representatives on how to do it. But that kind of change takes time, and many Chinese people are growing impatient. They're unlikely to be soothed by the answer that Education Minister Yuan Guiren gave to the 11-year-old reporter at the party congress. He said, local governments and schools are all working hard to ensure students' food safety. In some places, there have been problems. We can't promise no problems will happen. But we've strengthened the political construction in terms of theory and environment. Maybe it's just a matter of phrasing. Political jargon doesn't work so well on the Chinese masses these days. Clear information and results do. And with half a billion Chinese online, efforts like those of food safety blogger Wuhan can be turbocharged and amplified, demanding safe food on the table and a more responsive relationship between China's government and its people. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. You can read Mary Kay's blog on food safety in China at theworld.org. Also, China's growing appetite for meat is driving changes in everything from food safety to farming. Mary Kay reports on that tonight on the PBS NewsHour. It's part of Food for Nine Billion, a series in partnership with the Center for Investigative Reporting. In France, there are other health concerns with regards to food. Palm oil, for one. A proposed amendment there would put a 300 percent tax on palm oil, which is high in saturated fat and deemed unhealthy. It's found in many food products like baby formula, chocolate bars, and margarine. But the amendment has been nicknamed the Nutella tax because the chocolate hazelnut spread contains no less than 20 percent palm oil. Adrian Gontier is a Ph.D. student in geochemistry in Strasbourg in France and an expert on palm oil. He says he was pleasantly surprised by the measure, but is concerned that it doesn't go far enough to curtail deforestation and other environmental issues associated with the production of palm oil in places like Indonesia and Malaysia. The Malaysian Palm Oil Council said palm oil is a healthy, natural, and important product, which 240,000 small farmers in Malaysia are proud to produce. Gontier says that's nonsense. Not only is palm oil not healthy, but the so-called small farms in Malaysia are not sustainable family-owned businesses, but portions of what were gigantic plantations owned by the government or the palm oil industry. Now, regardless of what happens with the fat tax, the maker of Nutella, Ferrero, says after five decades in stores, the Nutella concoction will not be altered. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a storied house in Los Angeles that offers a refuge for writers and artists fleeing repressive regimes. Yeah, you are in awe when you walk around here and you work here. And uh, it's a fabulous place full of spirits. The Villa Aurora, head on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. 
defeating al-Qaeda in Yemen is one of the top priorities on President Obama's national security agenda. But Obama isn't the first White House occupant to take up that fight. Let's go back to the year 2000 and the bombing of the USS Cole. There was an explosion uh, caused externally to the ship. There are more than 30 injured. Some if, as it now appears, this was an act of terrorism, it was a despicable and cowardly act. The coal was docked in the Yemeni port of Aden when a dinghy packed with explosives plowed into the side of the warship. 17 American sailors were killed and 39 were injured. Then came the attacks of September 11, 2001, which drew attention away from Yemen and onto Afghanistan and later Iraq. That changed again in 2008 with an attack on the U.S. Embassy in the Yemeni capital, Sana'a. We understand that there were two vehicle-borne bombs that were part of this attack. One objective of these extremists as they kill is to try to cause the United States to lose our nerve and to uh, withdraw from regions of the world. Gregory Johnson is author of The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. He describes that 2008 attack on the embassy. This is an attack that took place on the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a in September of 2008. And this is really the moment where the U.S. once again woke up to the threat of al-Qaeda in Yemen. There had been a prison break in February of 2006 in which 23 al-Qaeda members tunneled out of this maximum security prison in Sana'a. They tunneled their way into a mosque. They said their morning prayers, and then they walked out the front door to, to freedom. And that's, that's really the genesis moment of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And two years later, in 2008, they were able to carry out this, this attack on the U.S. Embassy. And what happened is al-Qaeda essentially used a one-two punch. So they had the first car. They had a lot of bombs in the, in the car. It drove through the opening gate there at the embassy, and it was speeding its way towards the final gate where it would attempt to sort of explode and then breach the door, and then another five attackers would sort of run in through that breach with automatic machine guns and attempt to kill as many Americans as they could. Thankfully, in this case, a Yemeni security guard, a a local individual, was able to lower a bar that forced the car to, to explode several yards away from the gate. But this is the moment in September 2008 when the U.S. really woke back up that al Qaeda is once again a threat and is carrying out attacks against the U.S. I mean, that narrative sounds a little like Benghazi in September of 2012. Uh, do you think the U.S. let its guard down in 2008 in, in Yemen? Absolutely. I think what happened is that al-Qaeda in Yemen was largely defeated by the end of 2003-2004. And essentially, the U.S., along with the Yemeni government, took their eye off the ball, took their eye off what al-Qaeda was doing. And so when this prison break happened in February of 2006, they paid very little attention to it. And al-Qaeda essentially had two years in which to rebuild their organization up from the ashes with, with no sort of interference or pressure from either the U.S. or Yemeni governments. And the result was then this attack in September 2008 and, of course, all the attacks that have taken place since then. Right. So uh, we've got the underwear bomber, Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib uh, from Nigeria, who was uh, stopped on his way into Detroit with a bomb. There was also the printer cartridge bombs that were found on cargo planes. That was, uh, that was a plot that was foiled. Let's just move straight up to 2011 and the cleric Anwar al-Awlaki and the announcement of his death. 
As we know, he was involved in the Detroit bombing. He was involved in the cargo bombing uh, efforts. He continued to try to inspire people. So the loss of Anwar al-Awlaki was brought about through a, a drone strike. Um, you were just in Yemen, Gregory Johnson. How are the U.S. military and CIA drone programs perceived there right now? Well, they're incredibly unpopular in Yemen. For the last three years, what we've seen is that the U.S. has carried out a number of drone and a number of airstrikes against al-Qaeda in Yemen in an attempt to eradicate the organization, in an attempt to keep the organization back on their heels enough that they're not able to carry out an attack against the United States. So this is what we saw with the drone strike that killed Anwar al-Awlaki. The Obama administration has attempted to be very clear that it doesn't want to get sucked into any sort of a war in Yemen, that it wants to only target the top commanders of al-Qaeda who are plotting and planning against the United States. The problem is that the U.S. says there's about 10 to 15 of these individuals that it's trying to kill in Yemen. This year, it's carried out anywhere from 37 to 50 strikes in Yemen, 37 to 50 strikes in an attempt to kill 10 to 15 individuals. So in my view, one of two things is happening. Either the drone strikes aren't as accurate as we're continually being told that they are, or the U.S. is targeting many more individuals than those 10 to 15 on its list. And I think if it's the latter, then the U.S. really does run the risk of being sucked into a much longer, a much costlier conflict in Yemen. Gregory Johnson writes the blog Wak al-Wak and is the author of the new book, The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. Gregory, good to speak with you again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Marco. Bicycles and bubble tea are your first clues for today's GeoQuiz. The East Asian city we're looking for has at least a couple of cool claims to fame. Bubble tea is said to have been invented in the city's tea shops back in the 1980s. And if you own a bicycle, chances are that at least one of its components was made in the city. There are hundreds of bike manufacturing plants there. They churn out everything from spokes and rims to chains and pedals for global distribution. Can you name this East Asian city that looks out on the Taiwan Strait? Hats off to Jen in Amherst, New York, Sarah in Denver, and Jake in Nashville for sending winning answers to our texting game today. You two can play along and test out your map skills. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. We're back to share the answer in just a bit. High on a hill in Los Angeles, there's a stately white villa with a flower-filled garden and a view of the Pacific. Sounds great. But this is not your typical L.A. mansion. For more than 70 years, it's been a refuge for writers fleeing repressive regimes. Julia Simon has a story. Let me take you back to the early 1940s, when this villa would be full of famous German writers, directors, and composers playing music and talking about the war. The composer Kurt Weill would be here, Thomas Mann, Bertolt Brecht, and the Hollywood crowd too, Marlena Dietrich, Billy Wilder, Charlie Chaplin. They'd all come to the Villa Aurora. Yeah, you are in awe when you walk around here and you work here, and uh, it's a fabulous place full of spirits. That's Margit Kleinman, director of the Villa Aurora. 
The house is now owned by a German nonprofit, but the previous owner was German Jewish novelist Leon Feuchwanger and his wife Marta. They were interned in concentration camps in France before they managed to escape to America with the intervention of Eleanor Roosevelt. They bought this house in Los Angeles in 1943 and lived here until their deaths. The books are all over the place. Kleinman shows me Leon's office, where he worked on his novels and plays. We open up the shutters and look out over the Pacific. The Pacific Palisades in all its splendor. So, so Leon would look out at this every day when he was working? Yes, definitely. And then he would take little uh, walks in his garden. It's not only Leon who wrote books in this house. One of the current residents of the Villa Aurora is Tunisian novelist Hasuna Mosbahi. Mosbahi is the latest Feuchwanger fellow. They're writers, like Leon, who come from countries where they experience persecution. Over the past 15 years, the fellows have come from all over the world, from China to Zimbabwe. Margit Kleinman says it's a nine-month opportunity to do what Leon did. Sit in paradise and, and work. Hasuna Mosbahi says it's not just the idyllic surroundings that allowed him to write his novel. Here at the villa, his mind is free. That's not the case back home, he says, where conservative Islamic political forces are growing more influential. In Tunis, you always feel suffocation, because there are a lot of taboos, a lot of people who say, you have to be like this or you have to be like that. In this atmosphere, I can't set my imagination free. I can't be a writer. Yet it can be hard to be a writer here, too. Even with their beautiful home, Leon and Marta were never completely comfortable in the U.S. During the McCarthy era, Leon was branded a communist. And in this 1975 archival interview from the UCLA Oral History Project, Marta says her husband was haunted by the war and those who couldn't escape. He never could forget that, you know. It was always in his subconscious as well as in mine. Always this, this feeling that we were... Uh, chosen and they also had to stay there. Some of the Feuchwanger fellows can't go back to their native countries, but some do go home. I called up last year's fellow, Iranian novelist Amir Hassan Sheheltan, and I reached him in my study room, and my house is in the north of Tehran. Sheheltan can't publish his work in Iran, and he's been harassed by the Iranian media. Still, he says he can't bear life in exile. I am not able to bear the, the feeling of losing, the feeling of nostalgia. It, it goes deeply to, to my feelings that I have to my home. This, this is my home, you know? And given a choice between paradise and home, he chooses home. For The World, I'm Julia Simon. Los Angeles. You can check out the view from Villa Aurora. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Now to the East Asian city we asked you about in our GeoQuiz. It's hosting an international bicycle trade show. Representatives for hundreds of bike brands are showing off their wares, a little like fashion designers show off their latest creations. Nicole Formosa is there. She's international editor for Bicycle Retailer and Industry News. 
I am in Taichung, Taiwan, which is a pretty significant manufacturing hub for the bicycle industry. Like how many manufacturers are based in Taichung? Hundreds, I would, I wow. would say. Yes, there are many parts suppliers and frame manufacturers here. But what I'm hearing in back of you doesn't sound like bicycles. <laughs> Scooters. Uh, Taichung is a scooter city. There are thousands of them. For as much as Taiwan is significant for manufacturing bicycles, it's actually not the most popular place to, to actually ride a bike. Uh, it's far more popular for scooters. You know, people are in a hurry here and the scooter will get them there faster. So at a big international bike show, what's the vibe? Is it kind of like a fashion show, preview of stuff and uh, getting a chance to kind of use some of it? There are some demos, but it's much more of a sort of show and tell. It's set up inside of hotels in downtown Taichung. Brands will have their product in hotel rooms and people just sort of wander in and out and look at what they have to offer. I assume you're talking uh, brakes and derailers and hubs and lights. Some of the upcoming trends are hydraulic disc brakes for road bikes. That's something that's coming in the next couple years. Another thing is what's called 650B mountain bikes. So that's between a big wheel 29-inch bike and a traditional 26-inch bike. Mm. So there's these little sort of niches that surface at a show like this. Stuff that will become mainstream in the next two to three years, but are not mainstream now. One thing that I'm really intrigued to hear about is the e-bike. What's that all about? What is an e-bike exactly? An e-bike, an electric bike. So it's uh, pedal assist. Uh, There is a motor and a battery that essentially will help a rider along up to a certain speed limit. So it makes a very fast and efficient and easy ride. Uh, and it sort of makes the bike accessible to to everybody. Right. I think some bicycle purists would say that anything that helps you bike is no longer a bike. You're getting some propulsion. But apparently, sure. apparently there are now efforts being made to take the cables out of bicycles. Have you seen any of that going on? Yeah, that would be electronic shifting, which is battery powered shifting. So it's still, you're not getting any pedal assist on that. It just makes the shifting a little bit smoother. And is that the wave of the future? Is that the way all derailleur bikes and all bikes are going to go? You know, as much as can be integrated on a bike will happen. That's integrated cables into the frame and that's battery powered shifting and that suspension that is electronic. So electronic and integration is very much the future. Now, you're a journalist for the bicycle industry. Do you bike? Yes. Have you had Avid a chance? Cyclist. Have you had a chance to get out and explore Taichung on two wheels? I've actually explored the whole island of Taiwan. I've ridden around the island on a road bike 400 miles. So I've seen a lot of this island uh, on two wheels. It's totally different seeing it by bike. Once you get out of the industrial part of Taiwan, it's beautiful, unspoiled, undeveloped, uh, amazing views of the ocean. And seeing that all by bike is a unique way to take it all in. I'll have to try that someday. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole Formosa, international editor for Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, speaking with us from Taichung, Taiwan. Taichung is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Nicole, thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's check in with Mali in West Africa, where a lot's going on, but few journalists have been allowed into the northern part of Mali since Islamists took control of the region earlier this year. The news that does trickle out is grim. The imposition of Sharia law means that the normal rhythms of life, music and dancing, even drinking tea, have been severely disrupted. And for those who defy the law, there's severe punishment. Recently, Paul Mben, a Malian journalist who writes for Germany's Spiegel newspaper, did manage to get into northern Mali. The world's Clark Boyd has a story. Paul Mben says he had to prepare very carefully for his journey into northern Mali. It took weeks of negotiating safe passage with some of the Islamist authorities that now control the region. He had to follow a strict dress code, pants that reach the ankles, for example, the kind of trousers, he writes, that radical Muslims believe the Prophet Muhammad favored. Mbed endured checkpoint after checkpoint on his way north from the capital, Bamako. The men at the checkpoints, he writes, repeated through a megaphone, no cigarettes, no CDs, no radios, no cameras, no jewelry. Eventually, he reached the cities of Gao and Kidal. Speaking through an interpreter, Mben told the BBC about his reporting trip. For instance, the situation in, in Gao uh, was uh, controlled by Islamist radical grouping, and uh, life is very difficult. There's no, no work. Uh, hotels are closed. In Kidal, the city is controlled by a Tuareg rebel group and the uh, Al-Qaeda elements. Life is also very, very difficult. And so the situation is very tense and um, people have to obey to Islamist uh, groups which uh, impose the Sharia. Ben writes that Gao, a city of 100,000 people, has become a lifeless place. The city was once a stopping point for tourists on the road to Timbuktu. But no more. Shops have been boarded up. Trash collection has ceased, leaving piles of garbage rotting in 100-plus degree heat. The main employer now? The Islamic police, whose headquarters, Ben Riley notes, are on Washington Street. And those police are always visible, always on the lookout for people violating Sharia law. What is more visible when you are in in the city is people don't smoke in the street, uh, they they can't listen to music. In the north, they used to like to sit and have tea. They're no longer doing that. And if you get caught doing any of that, Ben says, you could find yourself in prison, or worse. I've seen one amputation in Gao. It was a, a young man. He had been arrested uh, five times for stealing cattle, and uh, he was reselling them in in Niger. And the amputation took place in a barrack uh, in Gao. Uh, It was in a room, small room, and the young man was, uh, he received some anesthetic, and then uh, a man came with a knife and cut his uh, hand. Two days later, Mben says, the young man died from loss of blood. He says what he saw in Gao still gives him nightmares. Despite this kind of terror, Mben met Malians who have chosen to stay in the north. One young woman told him that the Islamists have destroyed her life. They should all burn in hell, she said. During Mben's three weeks in northern Mali, he says he never stayed in one place for more than a night. And sometimes he slept in the desert. He lived in constant fear that the Islamists would find his camera. Seven uh, gunmen were um, looking for me. And, uh, I mean, obviously they would have searched my bags, my camera, whatever. And I was really frightened that day. 
Even though he's back in Bamako now, Mben says he still fears for himself and his family. As for the situation in northern Mali, the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, says it will send more than 3,000 troops to help Malian government forces oust the Islamists from the north. But analysts say it could be months before such help arrives. European and NATO officials have said that they will only provide intelligence and logistics support for such an operation. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Why don't we close with a bit of hope and optimism from another part of Africa? It comes to us via our guest DJ in Lusaka, Zambia, Manasa Piri. Today, we're going to hear music of a very, very exciting young Kenyan musician called Christine Kamau, and she plays the trumpet. That is a track called African People. It's a tune that Christine Kamau wrote to celebrate her African culture and heritage, a jazz fusion together with a Kenyan style of music called Benga. Now, in Africa, it's very rare for a woman musician to play a horn instrument. Christine Kamau, in fact, started out at age 11, taking classical piano lessons, and then decided to pick up a second instrument, and that instrument is the trumpet. And she says she loves, totally loves the sound of the horn. The next track that I'm going to play for you is called Do What You Want. And Christine says of this that uh, the title takes after her own mantra in her own life, and she specifically does what she wants. What she wants to do right now is to play the trumpet for you. Christine Kamau's album, This Is For You. Amongst her greatest influences in life and in her music, Christine Kamau lists various things, God, life, situations, conversations, and so on. And musically, she admires and is greatly influenced by the great South African trumpeter Hugh Masekela. In fact, the last track on the album, This Is For You, is dedicated to Bra Hugh Masekela. It's called Baba Africa. Definitely going places. Baba Africa, a track from Christine Kamau from her debut album, This Is For You. And that is the music that we featured today from Africa for you. Manasa Piri of Station Joy FM in Lusaka, Zambia. We have all of his DJ picks at theworld.org. 
from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.